The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Welcome Christians conservatives, constitutionalists, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ people, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warned you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us here on Thursday morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so, sonsoflibertyradio.com and sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, you can head over to sonsoflibertymedia.com. That's right, you can see the face that's made for radio right there. Scroll down, and I'm right there on the right uh, if you want to see the video portion of this, as well as my guest that I'm going to have on this morning. You can also watch that live video feed on my Twitter account at FPPTim. That's tied to my Periscope account, which is Setting Brush Fires. Or on Facebook, our, our Facebook page is Bradley Dean SOL. Our YouTube channel is B. Dean Sons of Liberty. Beforeitsnews.com has us up there every weekday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, Saturdays at 8 a.m. Eastern, and then Bradley's on Monday through Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Beforeitsnews.com. And then we've got DLive.tv at the Sons of Liberty, and uh, we appreciate our friends over at DLive. In fact, many of you who are watching on a lot of these platforms get ready for the next wave of censorship Head over to DLive.tv, friend us over there at The Sons of Liberty, because that's where a lot of YouTubers are going. It's mainly for, it's the most strangest thing that I know of, uh, to stream gamers playing their games. It's it's rather interesting that there's a whole site for that. But a lot of YouTubers are going over there and using the platform because there's no censorship. And uh, so if you want to do that, go to DLive.tv and look up The Sons of Liberty and you can follow me there. Also, you can pick up Spreely, Gab, MeWe, Minds, and USA.Life as alternative social media platforms. Look up Sons of Liberty or Sons of Liberty Media. And if you got a question or a comment that you want to make about today's show, we're going to be talking about Restore Minnesota. Okay, So if you want to comment on that, maybe you have something that uh, a question you have for the guest, 215-TOP-TALK, 215-867-8255. Those of you watching my video, it's down there in the bottom right of your screen. And we appreciate your support so much. Now, <clears throat> some of you who listened to Bradley the other day in the afternoon, you heard his interview with Dale Wither- Witherington. And uh, Dale is the chief steward of Restore Minnesota. And he's got a lot of things that he has going on, a directory of community engagement for Minnesota Family Council, a state director for Minnesota Legislative Prayer Caucus, 
a P-50 pastor to the state of Minnesota Family Research Council, and a counterintelligence specialist and the on the communist Islamic takeover of America. And with that said, uh, I told Dale to come on early, so I'd set up this video, and we got to talking, and I didn't get to do that. So I'm going to do that while I say good morning, Dale. Welcome to the Sons of Liberty. Hey, good morning, Tim. Good to meet you this morning. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. I'm going to bring up uh, the video for people who can't see that. And, and you uh, get another face made for radio. There you go. There you go. Two guys <laughs> with the face made for radio. <laughs> All right. So here's Dale. And uh, Dale, tell us, uh, you know, I kind of gave a couple of little things. And some people say, well, what's a P-50 pastor? What's a chief steward? What's Restore Minnesota? What's this? All we, we, Most people will get counterintelligence specialist. But what's all this other stuff? What, what, are, what are these hats that you wear? And uh, how did you come to, to do all these things? Well, the hats... Um came about because uh, since 2012, I have been a pastor to our state legislators here in the state of Minnesota. And during the first session, the uh, concept of Restore Minnesota uh, came out of a time that I had with the Lord. It was uh, during a time of prayer. And Restore Minnesota simply means that God has put on his church to restore righteousness in Minnesota through spiritual and civic transformation based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's based on a foundation, Tim, that uh, we, we believe, I believe personally, that God founded uh, and ordained three institutions. The first institution is the family. The second institution is the church to give moral order to the family. And the third institution is government to give moral order to society. And the question then becomes from where does God get its moral authority and moral instruction. And of course, it's supposed to come from the church. And that's the only way you get righteous men and women put into office. And that's where you get Proverbs 29 two, that when the righteous rule, the uh, people rejoice. When the unrighteous rule, uh, the people groan. We get Proverbs uh, in chapter 34. It says, uh, righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to all people. Uh, and it's been my opinion as a pastor since the mid-1970s that the church has been weak in its role in influencing the uh, realms of government as it's supposed to here in the United States. So that's, that's where the Restore Minnesota and uh, restoration of righteousness in both the spiritual and civic realm meet. Uh, the other hats are as a result of being a pastor to the state. Minnesota Family Council is our policy council here in Minnesota. Uh, we've got two prongs. One is an education prong. That started back in 1982. I was one of the founders back in 1982. And this is to educate the church on just what is it we're supposed to do in terms of influencing and impacting our culture for Christ and in the realms of government. How does that look? What does that look like? And the second prong for, for our policy council is to actually work with legislators as a Christian influencing or a lobbying arm so that every legislator that we work with recognizes that they have been put into the ministry of elected office. And it is their job, particularly if they are followers of Christ, it is their job for every committee that they sit on to discover for themselves how the scriptures speak in principle or directly to any legislation that they're part of. And if they're not believers, then we've got the first Timothy two, one through four passage. It tells us we're supposed to pray for our leaders for the purpose of their salvation. So we've got those two prongs with Minnesota Family Council. 
And because Minnesota Family Council as a policy council has a working relationship with Family Research Council out of Washington, D.C., which is a very strong conservative Christian policy council. Tony Perkins is the president. Uh, he meets regularly with President Trump. He sits on the president's evangelical advisory board. He's the head of the president's religious liberty committee. Uh, Tony's organization wants to have a pastor in every state in the nation. That's where the 50 comes from. So pastor, 50, uh, to create a pastor's network in the state so that the church is at the center of influencing the culture, which includes the realm of government. And then the state director of the Legislative Prayer Caucus came about because uh, two of our representatives, uh, a senator and a rep for whom I've been pastoring, they connected with the Congressional Prayer Caucus in Chesapeake, Virginia. And that was founded by uh, then-Congressman Randy Forbes back in 2005. And Randy wanted to uh, bring the Christians together who were serving on Capitol Hill to pray together and to have a more biblical influence in Congress and founded the, the Congressional Prayer Caucus for legislators only and then created a support system, the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, to pray for and carry out some of the directives, some of the uh, uh, legislative aspects of what the Congress was doing. And from that, they created affiliates in 30 plus states and our representatives wanted to create an affiliate here in Minnesota about four years ago. And they asked me as their pastor if I would serve in the support role as a state director. So all of them kind of come together because all of these organizations stand on pillars like uh, we're pro-life. We are pro-religious liberty. We're pro-Judeo-Christian heritage. We promote prayer. And uh, we believe in the Bill of Rights. We believe in our Judeo-Christian heritage and our constitutional republic and the role of the church to influence our nation. So that's what those hats mean. Okay. All right. Great. Um, and, and, you know, I got questions in my mind uh, with regard to the influence that President Trump is getting, uh, because I see him using Christianity and the Bible as a prop. That's just, that's, that's my observations. Um, I don't think the man really cracks open a Bible because when I, when I hear him talk, when I hear some of the things that come out, it's like, okay, I don't see that reflected in the life you live. I mean, the man's over 70. I, I got into a thing the other night when I put a, a, something on Facebook uh, reminding people that this man dodged the question on asking God for forgiveness, talking about repentance and things. But I'm glad that there are men such as yourself who know the Bible, who are willing to, you know, stand in the gap, as it were, to, to pray for the president. Um, and I'm wondering how many people within this, this, uh, uh, this 50 pastor network, if you will, how many of those guys actually interact with President Trump and actually confront him, not just on policy issues and things of that nature, but with the gospel itself? If the Bible says that we're to uh, disciple the nations— and part of that is teaching them all things that Christ commanded, which, as you said, you were mentioning some of these things about um, the things that go on in our land that we should have an influence of there. When Thomas Jefferson wrote about a wall of separation between church and state, he wasn't saying the church couldn't have influence on the government. What he was saying was the government didn't have a right to tell the church what to do, which was happening in England. What, what right. would you say about some of that from your experience so far? Well, of those P50 pastors and, and others on the staff of Family Research Council, I'd say a, ha a handful of them 
have had access to the president in one form or another, but one in particular, Tony Perkins, meets with him on a very regular basis. And I, I, by regular, it is somewhere in the area I understand to be weekly or biweekly. Um, I have never met with the president personally myself. I have been in the White House a couple times uh, for some briefings when I'm in Washington, D.C., when we bring some of our pastors together. Um, but I have been in a meeting with uh, a number of pastors where the um, guest was Vice President Pence. And I can tell you that I was in Vice President Pence's office when he was governor of Indiana. And on his desk was a wide open Bible with uh, all of his personal notes. And, and uh, a peer of mine was his pastor there in Indiana. So there was no question of, of uh, Vice President Pence's commitment to the Lord and his influence uh, to President Trump. I will tell you this, and this will come as kind of, of a surprise, perhaps based on what I just heard you say. There is a pastor by the name of uh, uh, Pastor James Robeson. And about the time that uh, President Trump was in the thick of his campaign run, so we're going back now into early to mid-2016, uh, I was in D.C. for our May 2016 conference, and Pastor Robeson told us publicly, so what I'm going to share with you is public information. Uh, Pastor Robeson told us that he'd received a call from uh, Ben Carson, who's now our uh, Secretary of HUD, I believe, if I got that right. Uh, and Ben went to Pastor Robeson to say, uh, Pastor, I'm about to drop out of the race and endorse Donald Trump. And of course, that's going to create a firestorm amongst conservatives. And you think about that. Uh, I think for a lot of us, when there were 17 Republican candidates uh, about that time, uh, Donald Trump was maybe our 30th choice out of those 17. Uh, we, you know, we didn't know him except for what the media told us. Ben Carson told Pastor uh, Robeson, I'm going to endorse Donald Trump, but only if he's willing to meet with you for a period of time. And the pastor said, I will be glad to meet with him if he'd meet with me. Well, he ended up meeting <clears throat> together. And to our surprise, I'm going to say it that way, to our, maybe to our great surprise, Pastor Robeson told us, he said, Donald Trump is one of the most genuinely sincere and humble men I have ever met in my life. Now, Pastor Robeson's in his 70s. And that was a pretty broad statement for most of us to swallow based upon the public persona we've seen of Donald Trump at that point. And that was about two to three weeks before the meeting that you might remember took place in New York city, where then candidate Trump was going to meet with about a thousand evangelical leaders. And you can read about that meeting in George Barna's book, the day Christians changed America. And in that book, Barna describes two he describes a group called SageCons, uh, spiritually active, governmentally engaged conservatives. Most of them are um, at that time were the white hairs guys over sixty like myself. Uh, what he said was going into that meeting, uh, he divided the SageCons into two groups. One was uh, the I'm sorry the SageCons were about ninety plus percent against Donald Trump going into that meeting. The second group he called the nominals. The nominals would be those who would identify themselves as either Christian or Christian principled, uh, if they weren't followers of Christ, but you know biblically principled. And 
they had maybe an 80 plus percent against Donald Trump going into that meeting. Donald Trump was to meet with them for about 30 minutes. He came on the stage. The first thing he did is he said, why are you allowing the government to keep your mouth shut? And he was addressing the Johnson Amendment to them at that time. And that opened up a discussion that, uh, to, to my recollection, I'd have to go back to the book, lasted over two hours. And in those two hours was a give and take from the top church leaders of this country, from all kinds of stripes, denominations. And by the time they were done talking about the conservative biblical issues that uh, were important to them, they were so convinced that Donald Trump was the candidate that would support those issues if he became president, that when the election day came, over 90% of the sage cons voted for him and over 80% of the nominals voted for him. It was a complete flip-flop. And you might remember too that the Heritage Foundation, which was considered at the time one of the top think tanks in DC uh, from a biblical perspective, along with Family Research Council, they put together a list of 364 items that they wanted to see done by a biblically principled president. By the end of his first year in office, Donald Trump had completed 189 of those 364, more than any president in our history. By the end of the second year, it was way up in the 200s. And this president maintains in his private office, outside of the Oval Office, a whiteboard with every promise that he's made to the American people that he has not yet fulfilled, and that is what he continues to work on. Now, James Robeson came back to us a year later, and he shared with us some things that the vice president later confirmed when he met with us about Donald Trump's faith in Christ and other personal things. But all I will say to that point is there was a very strong confirmation, and that got me thinking about uh, the movie Miracle. You might remember the movie Miracle. It was about the 1980 uh, USA hockey team. Uh, Herb Brooks from here in Minnesota, where I'm based, was the head coach. And Herb Brooks had a strategy that basically was, um, as summed up in one of the scenes in the movie, that he was treating his hockey players in such a way that they were hating him. And one of his staff closest to him said, perhaps his strategy is to get them to hate him so they'll quit hating each other and they'd form a unified team. And so Herb Brooks was like a lightning rod. He would say things, he would, he would signal things. And this was before the day of tweets and Facebook and all that stuff. But in his way, that's what he did. And he took himself as the lightning rod. And meanwhile, he formed a team that shouldn't have won anything and they won the gold medal. I came up with my personal theory. That is our president's strategy. He is so pro-American. He is so pro-life. He is so pro-religious liberty. He is so pro-freedom. He is so pro our national sovereignty and so anti-globalization and the takeover of America that he decided he's going to be the lightning rod. And every time he sends out one of those tweets that we cringe about, whether we like it or not, the man, as you said, he's over 70 years old. He's a Queens, New Yorker. His style is going to be really different than our style. And to me, 
he has got a style that causes the left to go running at those shiny objects that he throws out there called tweets. And when they go after those shiny objects, he's got his administration working on the things that we want them working on. And that's what the style is. So whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, that's what I believe is happening. I've mentioned that to a couple senior staff members in the White House, that that was kind of my take on things. And all they would do is kind of what you're doing, nodding their head. They'd smile a little bit and, and verify that. So can I speak to his personal walk with Christ? No, I can't, only because I've never talked to the man. Uh, but have I heard things about his personal walk with Christ? Have I seen his Bible? Have I heard about it? Yes, I have. But uh, I'd have to talk with him. I just appreciate the fact that regardless at this point of what we think or know or don't know about his personal walk with Christ, he is the one president in my lifetime, probably since Ronald Reagan and maybe even more so, who is def- who is doing more to defend the very principles that you talked about in introducing your show. Yeah, I appreciate you st- you stating those things. There are several things I have to talk. I- I'd like to challenge that with in what's been done. Uh, yeah. The push to democratize. Uh, decriminalize sodomy, something that God condemns as an abomination. He's put a open sodomite who tries to redefine marriage in uh, as uh, he put him in, as head of intelligence director. Um, a man who knows the Bible should know. Wait a minute, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Um, I can I can rest assured that uh, the images from his house exalt Apollos, the the sun god, Eros, the sex god, and all of these kinds of things. So. Um, and, and then we have the fiscal year uh, 2018 to 2019 report from Planned Parenthood where they got more money from you and me and the rest of the American people to murder more Americans uh, under in, than any time in their history. And they murdered more Americans in any time in their history under this administration. So I, those are just some things that come right off the top of my head, not, not to mention the USMCA, which is a sellout of American sovereignty. It puts it in it, it establishes a governing body above the three countries, Canada, Mexico and U.S. But but really, we're not here to talk about that. But we did get on the things. But for people who think that I'm a Trump hater, I just point out what I see coming out of the other. I've written on some of the things, Dale, that you talk about, um, some of the good things, that he, especially coming in the first uh, days of his office, some of the deregulation, some of those things. Um, I'm open to to acknowledge those good things. I want to be fair with the president because I don't know him either. I haven't met him either. Um, and I hear people talk about the, his humbleness, but then I come out and see he goes, I'm the chosen one. You know, <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, that's not very humble. Um, so so you understand the the things that I see. I'm not going to take somebody for 30 minutes of what they say and take a little bit of what they do. I'm looking at the bigger picture of here's the things that are coming, uh, especially things like uh, just junking due process to go take people's guns when a young man in Florida should have been dealt with a long time ago for for crimes he was committing of assault and things. So, yeah. but I appreciate your input and uh, and and that's 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 interesting. But we're here to talk about like um, the the Minnesota issue. I was asking that because I was I was genuinely curious, and so I appreciate you bringing that perspective in from from your side on the on the restore Minnesota. Um, what is that geared toward? Because you've got uh, people like Ilhan Omar who came out of this, the state legislature there. Nobody's brought justice against her. Donald Trump hasn't brought justice against really anybody, 
in the political body, which he promised the American people. He promised that about Hillary Clinton. He's not done anything. In fact, when he was elected, he said, you're a great debt of gratitude. He um, backed up in, on 60 Minutes, and he said, Bill and Hillary are my friends. Um, but in, in your state, you've got Ilhan Omar, right? She's a representative of the district there. And you've got Governor Tim Walls, uh, who, boy, I was trying to think. I ran across a story the other night where his daughter was outing him about something. I forget what the thing was that she was outing yeah. him about. Now we've got Muslims moving in, and I was going to show people this because I brought it up, and I wanted to get your take on this. Uh, we had it on SonsLibertyMedia.com yesterday. Uh, there's a Minnesota State Rep by the name of Steve Green. Uh, maybe you're familiar with him. Um, he said uh, on Tuesday, he stated the obvious that virtually everyone else has been tiptoeing around and pretending isn't there. Quote, what you're looking at, in my humble opinion, is communism moving into Minneapolis and St. Paul and not just communism. That's the end of his quote. And not just communism, but the leftist Islamic alliance. And we know they did that uh, in Nazi Germany. They aligned with the National Socialists, which is not which is just a step away from communism. What's going on there that uh, that you would oppose in this? Are you are you one that's calling for justice? Ilhan Omar has been using her campaign money to fund her adultery adultery that she was doing before her adulterous lover. Now she's married to him. Which, if <laughs> anybody reads the Bible, it's still adultery. They're still continuing in that because there's been no repentance of the other. She pushes a false god. This is the problem I have when people start talking about religious liberty. Let's be specific about that. Nobody has the God-given right to worship a false god. Now, they can think in their mind what they will, and man can't deal with that. But this open worship of Allah in America is counter to our foundations. It's counter to the Bible. What do you say? What are some things that, that Restore Minnesota is dealing with um, as far as what's going on there? Okay, great questions. And I'm not sure the hour that we have together is going to give us enough time. So we're going to have to set up another time. But we can, I will do, we my, can, best. I'll we do can, my best to. Yeah, we can go that. over a little bit if you want. So okay. you just let me know. Uh, my time is your time. It, it's fine. Uh, let me first uh, very quickly. Uh, and I don't want to turn this into a Donald Trump apologetic, I, but I do want to at least acknowledge what you just said in reference to, you know, re responding to me. The man's not perfect. I agree. The things you pointed out are question marks. They're questionable. Um, and I have learned in the, in the world of politics, whether we like it or not, there are, there is a word in the Christian world that we absolutely hate. And it's the word compromise. Uh, and we, we should hate it, but we also need to define it. So let me just say that there is compromise for political expediency in order to get things done. And then there is compromise that crosses a line of biblical or moral values or principles. And that is one of the toughest things I've watched um, our Christian legislators here in our state government deal with. And I, I've got to believe that that happens um, with high pressure at the national level as well. Uh, but I just, I just want to toss that out again, not as an apologetic for Donald Trump, because the points you make, I, have no, I would have no defense for, and I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I think it's been said in a cliche-ish and almost a stupid way, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, we didn't vote in a pastor-in-chief. We voted in a commander-in-chief. Um, 
But we are asking if a person is going to stand as a Christian in a public office to make that clear enough so that the lines of delineation of when you're compromising for political expediency versus compromising biblical truth, uh, those are, that's the big issue here. And I can't speak to that because I've never sat down and met with a president, but I want you to know, I wrestle with those things too, Tim. Um, I, I agree with you. And, and so beyond that. So here in Minnesota, um, you brought up several really key issues here regarding Governor Walls, regarding Yuhan Omar. You missed another name. I'm surprised you didn't bring up Keith Ellison. So I'm going to bring him up. Um, so let, let, let's start, first of all, with Governor Tim Walls. Um, in what world? And these are questions I have. And so this is a Dale Witherington opinion. And I want to make that real clear to those who are watching us and listening in that this is not any official position. This is Dale's thinking from Dale's working with our legislature and living in the state of Minnesota, which I've started to refer to Minnesota as the Soviet socialist Republic, uh, Soviet socialist Islamic Republic of Minnesota. That's how we're, we're kind of framing it these days. In what world does it make sense that a sitting congressman who has his district pretty well locked up and would probably have been reelected as a congressman, decide to leave office to come back to the state to become governor. And that's what Tim Walls did. Tim is from the Southern District, Congressional District 1 of Minnesota, and he chose to come back to be governor. Now, that might not be too goofy, um, but please understand that Governor Tim Walls and Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, um, those two as I have done my research, uh, they graduated from the political school known as the Wellstone School. Now, we'd have to go back a number of years, uh, somewhere about almost 20 years ago, but Paul Wellstone was a senator from Minnesota. Uh, He was a professor at Carleton College in Northfield, just south of Twin Cities, about 45 minutes, one of the most liberal education institutions in the United States. And Paul Wellstone, when he was a senator, was known within the context of the Senate of being the furthest left of any senator in the Senate. And his political thought, his school of thought, is the school of thought that brought up our current governor, Tim Walls, and Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. So that's the first question. When does it make sense to leave Congress to come back to run for governor? Question number two, when does it make sense for a sitting congressman, the first Muslim congressman in the history of the United States took his oath on the Quran. When does it make sense for the man who's got that district locked up to leave, to come back to run for attorney general, to be down by nine points two days before the election, and then he comes out and beats the candidate who is leading him? Uh, How does that work? Voter fraud. That's how it works. Voter fraud. Hello. Yes. (laughs) In Minnesota, we call it vote early and vote often. Um, I've, <laughs> I, I have got a representative friend of mine um, who, who said to me this. He said, Dale, my mother was born a Democrat in the state of Minnesota. She lived and, and voted as a Democrat throughout her life in, in the state of Minnesota. She died a Democrat in the state of Minnesota. And this year, she's going to vote as a Democrat in the state of Minnesota. So, you, yeah, voter fraud, that, that's another huge, huge issue. 
But here's what here's the tie. The tie is what you were referring to again in your introduction, and that is the red-green axis. You have got a governor and lieutenant governor who I personally believe is representing the red axis, the Marxist, communist, ideological viewpoints. And I think that has become even more evident in the way he's been handling COVID-19 and his emergency power lockdowns. Um, yeah. Can, and can, then, can we speak to that just a second? Let me ask you a question. Because when I look at our state constitution in South Carolina, I don't see any of this emergency power lockdown stuff. I don't see any of this this usurpation of infringements of rights due to stupid and I'm just going to say it outright, <laughs> outright medical lies. The fact yeah. of the matter is people cannot transfer a virus from one person to the other. They just can't do it. Wearing masks. Now I'm hearing that, uh, you know, my son and my, my wife went to um, Habitat for Humanity to look at something yesterday up in North Carolina. And the people told him, oh, well, you can't come in because you're under 16. And if you do come in, you have to wear a mask. You have to wear a mask which is a health hazard. I mean, this whole yeah. idea the World Health Organization is pushing in April saying, oh, it's bad for people who, and it's not helpful for people who are healthy to wear a mask. Now they're saying, oh, you need to wear a mask because they need to push the, the agenda to keep the yeah. lockdowns going. Where is that in the Minnesota Constitution? Where does the governor have that, that kind of authority to do that? Shouldn't the people just be saying, you know what, that's a nice opinion you have? Forget you. We're going to go without a mask because I know I'm going to do it if Governor McMaster, who's a Republican, decides he wants to put that stuff in. Well, my understanding is in the Minnesota Constitution, there is a phrase and I can't remember for the life of me the exact wording, so I'm not going to make it up. But the phrase is similar to the phrase in our nation's constitution that gives the right of our president to write his executive orders. And it's more of an implied inferred phrase. And that's where executive orders come from. So the same thing is true in Minnesota and those powers are still supposed to be limited. And, and this last week we had a special session because, you know, our legislative session got shut down uh, and did not get to accomplish what um, the legislators had hoped would be accomplished. And I've got to say kudos to our Senate, because in Minnesota, our House is led. We are the only, if I'm not mistaken, we're the only split state in the United States right now. Our House is led by the Democratic Party. Our Senate is led by the Republican Party. And our majority leader and his leadership, for the most part in our Senate, are very strong biblical Christians. And they are playing the role of defense right now to prevent anything that the House or the governor wants done. Uh, they're preventing that from happening. Uh, and we call it godly gridlock is what we call it. Um, last week, there was a vote um, as to whether or not we could end the governor's emergency powers. And the Senate voted to stop the governor's emergency powers. And in a Senate where we have 67 senators and it is a 35 to 32 Republican majority. So that's just kind of a skin of your teeth majority. There were three Democrats that went with the Republicans and uh, and voted. So that made it like a 39-28 vote. And in doing so, the Senate wanted to stop his, his authority. The House voted pure party line, and the Democrats um, far outweigh the Republicans right now in our House. 
And because the two did not agree, the House and Senate did not agree, the governor continues to have his authority to do his emergency peacekeeping orders. And um, most of us believe that he has done a super overreach on that. He's outside his limits. Uh, this idea of a mask, I absolutely abhor. I agree with you 100%. The information that seems to come out about wearing masks is they're much more unhealthy for you than they are doing anything to keep others healthy. Um, and so that's a misnomer. Uh, but that's what's going on. And that's where the Constitution gives him the ability to do that. So that now ties to um, going back to Keith Ellison, leaving Congress to become the attorney general. And Keith Ellison, we know, is a practicing Muslim Brotherhood Muslim. He, he, I've got him on video in many locations speaking at Muslim Brotherhood events supporting um, global Islamic jihad, uh, the, which is basically the way to take the way to take over nations and make them Islamic republics. That is the agenda of the uh, Islamic jihad. Well, how to me, take over a nation? Yeah, let me let me and, throw something let me throw something in there is because I've yeah. heard the mention that this whole mask thing of putting the mask on the face and I've I you know I've mocked people in the supermarket down here in the town that the little town that I'm in who wear this stuff who are imposing all these kinds of things that aren't law. And by the way, when you're saying an executive order, when you're saying whether it's a governor or a president, that applies to just the people in his branch. Uh, under him. That doesn't apply to everybody else because law comes through the legislature. Uh, they're the only people who write law. And so if this guy makes an order, that's not law. And so right. people really should treat it as though, well, that's your opinion. That's fine. Do whatever you want to do. Don't sit there and try to impose this on me. So I, I've mocked people over that too, because the issue is that is an infringement upon liberty. It is a, it is, to me, it's the same thing as if they want to come and, and jab a needle in my arm to give me a vaccine. Now you're effect, now you're affecting my body. And the fourth, the fourth amendment to the U.S. Constitution is very clear that we're to be secure in our persons. Um, yes. Now it's talking about crimes, but if you haven't committed a crime, they have nothing to be talking to you about in the first place. So I just, I wanted to kind of interject that in there because this is this is the this is the cry here. It's about safety. I'm wearing the shirt here uh, from William Pitt the Younger. It talks about necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves, and that's what we're hearing now. Well, we've got to do this to flatten the curve. We've got to do this for the safety and security of the people. And it's like, guys, don't you understand? These people may actually be ignorant of what they're saying, and they may have the best of intentions, but as they say, the road to hell is paved with yes, those. Yes, good intentions, yeah. <clears throat> well, I I agree with you 100%. And, and there's enough of us here in Minnesota. Uh, I mean, there is a group that has started a recall of the governor, and it, it took a certain amount of uh, signatures on a petition and had to be submitted to the Secretary of State. And of course, here in Minnesota, that's a third, like anywhere else, it's a third executive office. We've got five executive officers. And the Secretary of State in Minnesota has a reputation for um, being less than above board. Let me leave it like that. So to our surprise, when the petition was given to him, he put his stamp of approval on it. And that meant it had to go to the Minnesota Supreme Court to make a judgment as to whether we could take the next step to actually recall Governor Walls. The Minnesota Supreme Court said, 
uh, you've missed some technicalities in this petition. So they rejected the petition. And the beauty of it is they spe- uh, they specified what the technicalities were. So the people who are leading the effort to recall Governor Walls are in process right now of doing the petitions again and of meeting the requirements of those technicalities. And, and so that's in process. Now, whether it goes anywhere, I don't know, but that's the way we, the people, are seeking to fight back because you're exactly right. The governor does not get to create laws. However, because the, the House differed from the Senate, remember I said the Senate voted to eliminate or to end his emergency powers, the House said, no, he can keep them because they differed. He's allowed to keep doing that. And we, the people, are subject to his whims and to his following what we've known now for uh, over a month to be a very faulty model on this whole COVID thing. The numbers are wrong. The results are wrong. And the only question I keep raising, and it's, you know, this is another in in what world kind of a question. uh, In what world does it ever make sense that 99% of the population is punished to the point of almost personal destruction for the sake of the 1%. Isn't it the right thing to do for us to make sure to take care of our 99%, keep the economy going, keep their lives going, keep everything proper for them, and then in a compassionate manner, let's find a way to take care of those 1% who are most vulnerable, who are most susceptible, and boy, let, let's not go stick them in nursing homes. Have you seen how many people have died in Minnesota? And well, the percentage, but, but I, percentage I, of those who have come from nursing homes, it's like eighty-seven percent, I think, is sure. the number. Sure. Right? Well, I think I think the thing is, and we're we're scheduling Erin uh, Marie, the nurse out of New York City, um, who you know did that that great undercover work. We're scheduling her to come on the show as well. And it's not it, it, we can't even deal with the care. We're doing the care wrong. Um, yes. And and boy, I could go down a whole row of, of things with this, with the Rothschild Foundation and taking over the medical community, really teaching people things that were just completely wrong. This is, I think, why we have so many people on medications and things of that nature is they haven't taught them how to deal with this naturally. Uh, a lot of it in what they eat and what they do. Um, and instead what they say is you can take this pill, you can take this spoonful of medicine and this, that, and the other, and then that affects something because they're treating a symptom. Now we've got stuff where they're putting people, you know, healthy people. Um, Aaron was, was recounting, you know, the story, a guy came in with, um, um, anxiety and they put him on a ventilator and it killed him. I mean, they're murdering people there in New York city. Nobody's being held to account. I'm sure they're doing it other places too. Um, you know, and then we, then we trot out, and this goes back to even the president. We trot out all these things, so we're we're not uh, we keep the agenda kind of going by keeping the momentum of that, continuing to promote people like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, um, the World Health Organization. I, I, if I'm understanding it right, you know, was, this was a good thing. Donald Trump says he wants to defund the World Health Organization. That's a good thing because they're a propaganda outlet. They're not really. Uh, about health. They're about who's giving them money to say whatever they're going to say. 
Um, and I think, I think that's pretty clear from the change they made from April to June. They could say, well, we have more evidence than this, that, and the other. And that's just bunk. We already know the numbers have been padded. We know the lies have been spread about who dies from what and this, that, and the other. Uh, so I get that. But, yeah, you were talking about this recall of Governor Walz. How long does a recall in your state, how long would you project that takes to, to fulfill once the Supreme Court approves, I guess, whatever revisions they're going to do? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I haven't pursued that piece. Um, so I don't know. And I'm not, I don't want to make up an answer. Uh, I suspect that what will happen in our system, however, is they're going to make sure that anything like that keeps anything gets pushed back beyond the election. Uh, and even though our governor is not up for election this year, uh, they're going to do everything they can to mess up this election. That's their priority. In my opinion, again, Dale's opinion. And what you're just talking about with the World Health Organization and, and the care for people or lack thereof, uh, I'm not sure we should be surprised about this. The left is always uh, several steps ahead of the right in, in many ways. And here is part of the, in my opinion, again, the globalist agenda. Let's think about that, that agenda for um, the depopulation of society. What was one of the pieces a main piece uh, was the abortion issue. Um, you, you mentioned it earlier about the murdering of American citizens. The, the, you know, the, the left, they speak up about, they protect the vulnerable, the marginalized, the, the oppressed, and who's more vulnerable and more marginalized than a child in a womb. And yet we've killed well over 60 million of our children because of a leftist propaganda uh, belief. And, we keep focusing in the pro-life, when I say we, the right keeps focusing on pro-life issues from the abortion standpoint. That's already into law. We, we have to keep fighting it. But where we're missing the boat is they're already way ahead of us on the other end of life. And that is in physician-assisted suicide. And I can guarantee in South Carolina, in your legislature, just as here in Minnesota and in every legislature in the United States, on some legislator's desk sits a template of a bill to help get through physician-assisted suicide. And because they're not able to get that through yet, I happen to believe as part of the globalist agenda, what they're doing with this COVID-19 thing, with the masks, with the taking the elderly and sticking them into highly bad situations in these uh, assisted living facilities where that's where they're dying is in it. So it, it's an assisted death facility right now. Um, that's part of the, how do we get rid of the elderly part of the population who are no longer productive members of society? And that is part of the communist platform. It is people are not created in the image of God People are not valuable in and of themselves. People are utilitarian bits of protoplasm that are meant to be used for the purposes of the state. And if you cannot be a productive member that contributes to the agenda of the state, we will find a way to eliminate you. And so pro-life is at birth and pre-birth, and it is now at the other end. Uh, so, so I think that's a big part of what's going on here. It's part of that 
that agenda. That's what I think is happening. Yeah, I do too. And you mentioned the elderly. You know, the Bible speaks to that too. First Timothy 5, 8 uh, tells us that if anyone does not provide for his own, in that context, he's talking about the widows, those who are uh, 60 or older. He says, if they don't provide for their own, especially those of their own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, folks, yes. it, I understand if if somebody needs care, you make sure they get that like a 24-hour kind of care that maybe you can't provide. But you should be there constantly. I we We've been to nursing homes before. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these people don't have visitors ever. They're just left there. And, uh, it, you know, it's a shame that in Christian America, so many of, uh, of the children are like the Pharisees. They dishonor their parents. They say, oh, well, we put this money away for God, or we're going to use it for this, that, and the other. But they, they, they dishonor their parents by not caring for them in their elderly years the same way their parents cared for them when they were a helpless little baby. I, I think it's just a travesty. These are some practical things that when the church doesn't do its job, the state's more than willing to fulfill that and to fill that vacuum. And we got to stop that. That's a place where the church has to repent. Well, Tim, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I mean, I'm in a situation here. I've got elderly parents. Um, my, my, my dad's in a assisted living facility in California. My mom is in a non-assisted living facility in Colorado. Um, and oh boy, I'm, I'm going to step on somebody's toes who's listening and watching you right now. Um, but I happen to believe because I had to wrestle with this. Am I going to help take care of my parents who are in nursing homes or am I going to be giving of my tithe and offering money only to those places where I can get a tax deduction? And I believe the church you know, you look at, at uh, statistics of giving to Christ-centered Bible teaching churches, and I'll use the word tithe, and I know that can be a, a atomic bomb terminology right now, uh, but just for sake of a discussion, whatever that church teaches in the way of giving, uh, most Christians, I think, uh, in my experience anyway, uh, tax deductions are a big deal. And I'm not, a, I'm not averse to doing anything having to do with tax deduction. Shoot, I run a nonprofit, but I also run a for-profit business. And I'll take every tax deduction legally I can get. But that verse you just quoted, that super supersedes any tax deduction. If I have to make a decision over taking care of my parents or giving someplace where they're not going to get a dime of it, but I get a tax break, uh, you know, that, that, that's not even an issue for me uh, anymore. That, that, that's a big deal. But here's where our pastors uh, need to speak up more. Pastors tend not to do a very good job on teaching finance, teaching money. But for the most part, it has to do with the fact they're not taught that in seminary. Most of those men, and I'll say women because we've got female pastors as well, um, but they're not taught how to handle money in seminary. They, they're not even taught how to run a checkbook. So they get into churches and then they have their board of deacons, board of elders, administration board, whatever that looks like. And I would challenge most churches to ask the question of their board members, did you put them on the board because of their skill sets, or did you put them on the board because they meet the qualifications of First Timothy and of Titus in terms of spiritual qualifications? And ideally, they meet the spiritual qualifications first. And they also meet 
the skill sets of sharp business people who know how to handle money. And now you've got a conflict quite often between a pastor who knows nothing about money quite often and those on a board who might know business and running organizations. And they conflict because the pastor says, we're not an organization, we're an organism, and we're going to trust the Lord. And so you get a conflict of interest in how to run the finances. And here's my phrase now, Tim. Most pastors operate more out of a fear of their board than they have a fear of the Lord. No, I agree. I agree. Right? Yeah. So until we get that piece together, we're going to have some challenges with giving and 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 exactly what we're talking about here. So you want yeah. to say something? Please. Yeah. Let me okay. let me throw in something. I want to let people know we're we're going to run over probably a couple of minutes, ten or fifteen minutes after the show. So if you're on Red State Talk Radio, you want to join us on YouTube or Facebook or D Live or my Periscope account or any of that, please do so in, when the music closes off here. One of the things you know you're saying about there, you mentioned the the qualifications. We mentioned that here on the show. Um, for pastors and deacons. But, you know, it's it's interesting because at the first of the show, you said, you know, we're not electing a pastor in chief, and we're not electing a pastor in chief, but we are electing a minister of God. That's Romans 13. And as a result of that, in fact, in many areas in, in what was called Christendom, mainly in Europe, um, they're still called the minister of this or the minister of that in public office. And it's always amazed me when I've challenged people, I'm not saying you're saying it, but it's always amazed me when I challenge people about that. They give me, well, we're not electing a pastor in chief. I said, so what you're saying is you have a lower standard for somebody in public office than you do for somebody that, that's in your church. Um, I, I'm not following because, you know, again, God sets precept upon precept. He starts with the individual and he teaches us to aspire to those kind of qualifications. He teaches that for men in the home when they're in the, in the families. Then he teaches that for what happens in the church. And then all of a sudden we're to abandon that when we go to the political sphere. I, I don't think that you believe that. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. You can speak if you want. But I've often heard that, and I think they apply to both uh, if the way we're looking. What I want to do... Um, Dale, if I can, I want to hold you over 10 or 15 minutes after the show, and I want to hit on a couple of other things, because we got kind of a little bit sidetracked from Minnesota on some things. Can I respond to that first, real quickly? Yeah, go ahead. Real quickly, you got about uh, 30 seconds. Okay, real quickly, um, I agree with you. Uh, We are putting people into what we refer to as the ministry of elected office. Right. If you're going to disciple nations— Every person who's a follower of Christ in whatever sphere that they're in, in, the, in whatever they do, they are in ministry. That is, that's their calling. Now, I would also suggest God's the one who sets up kings, presidents, and he deposes them. And um, even our founding fathers. Five seconds. 20, yeah, 29 were Christians. Others followed biblical principle. God used Cyrus who was not a believer, sure. but he did help support biblical principles. I think that's at least something. All right, I appreciate that, Dale. You guys, 23 hours, Chuck Baldwin tomorrow, tomorrow morning on the State of Israel. See ya. All right, we're back right here. I, I had a few minutes to put that in there, and uh, I appreciate the time that you had to do that. I want to get back to Minnesota because, um, again, you know, sometimes when we're talking this way, I should be keeping us more on track, and I apologize to the audience for not doing that. But uh, one of the things I want to ask is you were mentioning the issue with Tim Walls. Is anything happening uh, with the state legislature in dealing with Keith Ellison? Because 
you know, there were a lot of people pointing some fingers about the voter fraud because of what you said before uh, with Keith Ellison. Uh, but nobody seems to follow through with it. I think that's the thing. They don't keep it alive to to follow through with it, to get to the bottom of it. And then the second thing is, what about the Ilhan Omar issue? I mean, we have so many, I mean, the documentation of her crimes is incredible. Uh, bigamy, um, immigration fraud. Now we've got this campaign, the use of campaign funds, you know, given to her adulterous lover, all this kind of stuff. What's being done about these guys? Because these guys are at the forefront of my mind. I'm sure there's other people who are who are wicked people in, in the Minnesota state legislature. But what's being done just about these two people? Well, in my opinion, because they are of the, of the party who is running the state, nothing is being done. Um, and what you're seeing is, is a strategy carrying out, uh, it, again, my opinion here, uh, when Keith Ellison leaves the Congress, uh, and comes to become our attorney general, he is replaced by Ilhan Omar. She is of the same district that Keith Ellison came from. And I, I think, I, I believe that that was planned. I think it was very uh, strategically implemented. It was intentional. Um, I believe that, you know, uh, I, again, e- even when she was a state rep, um, I, I do not believe that she is a friend of the United States. I believe that she's a treasonous member of our Congress. Uh, one thing that I have learned in my uh, uh, in one of my roles is that when a Muslim takes an oath, and you will know this, a Muslim's job is to do everything possible to advance the cause of Allah. And when a Muslim takes an oath to become a citizen of the United States, when a Muslim takes an oath to uh, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, I have learned this little phrase, and it's called inshallah, and it, it's translated as God wills or as, as God wills it, something along that line. And if a practicing Muslim takes an oath, and after saying that oath, they whisper, say out loud, or just mouth even without saying it, but they infer in Shalah, what they have just done is they have covered their tracks to say, I will uphold the oath I just took as long as it advances the cause of Allah. And that means I don't have to uphold the Constitution of the United States because the Constitution of the United States is contrary to Sharia law And if I am a practicing Muslim, I live under Sharia, and it is my job to implement Sharia wherever I go. And consequently, I believe that's where our attorney general, I believe that Ilhan Omar, or Ilhan Omar, and we've got a couple other um, Muslims now in our legislature who don't know how practicing they are, but that's at least the culture, that's the mindset from which they come. And that is the a key part of the battle that we're fighting. Right. Uh, now, uh, let me go back real quickly here to the governor. This was the article okay. my friend Brian had sent it the other day. Interestingly enough, it comes from G. Edward Griffin's um, site, which we are also contacting to have him on the show. And um, this, this came out, uh, let's see, this is June the 1st um, okay. that he's got this on. Minnesota governor's daughter used a tweet to deliver intel to looters and rioters. This is his own daughter. Uh, Hope Walls, 
who is the daughter of Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, tweeted information on Thursday, Thursday advising that the National Guard would be deployed or make arrests that night. Isra he- Hersey, the daughter of Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, tweeted out a list of needed supplies for rioters at the police precinct that was burned down. Now, again, I, I mean, these, these traitors are making traitors out of their own kids. Absolutely. And, you know, Keith Ellison's son is a member of the Minneapolis City Council. And I'm surprised. And maybe you've got that in a different headline or different part of the article. But his son is the one who came out and started screaming, defund and tear apart the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, And, you know, Keith Ellison, I've got pictures of Keith Ellison holding up Antifa's playbook. Sure. And supporting Antifa, right? Yep. So. So, yes, we have got treasonous traitors in office. When uh, Ellison was running, uh, there was a particular um, individual that met with one of the senators of our state and myself. And the senator is one of our Christian leaders. And this particular uh, person is a practicing, to some degree, Muslim, who said if Keith Ellison becomes the attorney general of Minnesota, the most powerful person in the state of Minnesota will become Jelani Hussein. Jelani Hussein is the executive director of CARE in the state of Minnesota, the Council of, Air, of American Islamic Relations. And he, he ties directly to Nihad Awad, who is the executive director of CARE in Washington, D.C. And, oh, by the way, is a graduate of the University of Minnesota. And if you've ever read Dave Gobbitz's book, the Muslim mafia and how his son, Chris, who is a personal friend of mine. And so I've learned this and you can get it from the book, but I get it from Chris, how he infiltrated care for six months, absconded with 12,000 plus documents and was able to prove. And our U S government used this in the court of law in the 2008 trial against the Holy land foundation to demonstrate that care is actually the public relations arm of Hamas the terrorist organization. So when you see care and, and they're slick, smiling, we, we call them suit-wearing jihadis. That's who they are. Well, if Jaywani Hussein is the most powerful person in the state of Minnesota, um, it's no wonder that you get the Muslim Brotherhood in D.C. working with the Marxists, the red-green axis, and you've got them in place in the highest levels of office in the state of Minnesota and now you get an idea of who's got the most influence in our executive branch of government. We believe that's exactly what's happening. And when you see Keith Ellison's son calling for the defunding of the Minneapolis Police Department, and we learned recently from a White House briefing that the Minneapolis Police Department's policy and procedures manual has not been updated for 40 years, 4-0, and Let's toss out the hot button word here that we're going to get to at some point, George Floyd. Uh, That whole George Floyd incident, um, apart from the fact that the man is dead, I'm going to set that aside for just a second. When I went through my counterintelligence training, one of the things that we talked about was that there will be some sort of incendiary event that will cause the leaders of the Marxist Islamist movement to send out their phone call or their text 
across the country to say now is the time to start violent insurrection against the United States, that incendiary event was the George Floyd event. All of those riots that you saw that we experienced that Minneapolis started for the rest of the world was a planned event where Antifa and the Black Lives Matters organization being led by the Communist Party launched against America as an insurrection against America. And it's important for my friends who are listening who think I just dissed the Black Lives Matters movement. It's important that we distinguish the difference between saying Black Lives Matter as a statement. Do they matter? Of course they matter. They're human beings created in the image of God. They matter. The Black Lives Matter organization did what the left does really well. They stole a phrase. They stole a name. And they took it, in this case, to run a communist-run organization to create an insurrection against the United States. So if I'm going to have a discussion with somebody about Black Lives Matter, I first have to distinguish between, are you talking about Black Lives Matter or are you talking about the organization? Because if we don't define that, we have a disconnect. But that's what's happening. And the concern right now is, as you read law enforcement, as you read law enforcement journals, the concern right now is George Floyd's murderer, uh, because that's the word being used, the police officer, Derek Chauvin, um, there is a great possibility, it looks like, that he's going to be fully acquitted. And the reason for that is, is multiple. Uh, one is when Keith Ellison took over the prosecution and took it away from the prosecuting attorney of Minneapolis, uh, Keith Ellison raised the murder charge from third-degree murder to second-degree murder. A lot of people said, well, hey, he's doing his job. That's a really good thing. Not necessarily. Second-degree murder is much more difficult to get a conviction on than third-degree murder, number one. Number two, because the Minneapolis Policy and Procedure Manual, uh, the, the Police Policy and Procedure Manual is out of date, I think they're going to be able to demonstrate that Derek Chauvin followed the Policy and Procedures Manual to a T. He was not guilty of murdering George Floyd, um, I think is what they're going to discover, because he followed the policy and procedures manual. So if anything, it's the police department that's at fault, not the officer, even though he's got a track record of being very abusive in that district, which, oh, by the way, is the center of Ilhan Omar's district. Um, third thing, a friend of mine is a martial arts expert. What I mean by that is he's got multiple black belts in multiple martial arts disciplines. He shared with me over dinner, he said, Dale, the knee on the neck is not what killed George Floyd. He said, if anything, it was the knee in the back. And he said, if you watch that video, you'll see the officer adjusting himself several, you know, about three or four times in that eight minute, 46 second time period. And every time he's putting more pressure on the back. And what that did is it presses the spine into the lungs, into the heart, and creates a distress to the heart. And he said, I knew George Floyd was a dead man when I watched the video and I saw the blood come out of his mouth because that was a demonstration that the heart was in such distress that he'd go into cardiac arrest. And 
He said, if the knee in the back, if the knee killed him, it was the knee in the back, not the knee in the neck. But you don't hear anybody talking about the knee in the back. So if he's charged with murder because of a knee to the neck, it is probable that forensic experts are going to be able to prove, no, the knee in the neck did not kill him. And then he gets thrown out because nobody's talking about the knee to the back. And then, of course, is the controversy of the two autopsies, which now showed that he had high degrees of methamphetamine, fentanyl, other drugs in his system. And one article came out to say that that caused in him extreme delirium and distress to his heart, even to the point that if the officers would have gotten up and just allowed him to lay on the sidewalk waiting for the ambulance, he had enough drugs in his system that he would have died anyway. So they're going to argue that all the need did was speed up the process. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm not the, the legal expert. Those are the questions being challenged. And the problem with that is if he's acquitted, the number one thing the people in George Floyd's neighborhood want, I've been down there twice. I've met with them. I've preached. I've shared. I've just talked with them. Um, The number one thing they want is justice. And of course, you've got to define what does justice mean in this circumstance. But if he's acquitted, the question will be, is justice served? And the biggest concern is that will launch round two of BLM and Antifa here and across the country. No, I agree. And, and, you know, Rightly, I've said this before, we make distinction between protesters and rioters and looters because the media, this is how socialists work. They start changing the the, the definition of terms that get used and they throw them out there. They're no longer illegal immigrants. They're undocumented workers. Uh, I'm sure down the road we're not going to be calling people thieves. We're going to be calling them undocumented shoppers. I don't know, something like that. Anyway, the point is is that um, when we get into this kind of thing, uh, we've got several things that are happening here. We do know, for instance, um, there has been a lot of Israeli training to our police officers uh, for these kind of tactics of what they're using. Now, when you mentioned the, the knee to the back, we had a guy down in Texas. So I did a whole show on this white guy, and they the officer sat right on his back with his knee in his back right on the ground, um, and uh, and the guy died. And then they gave him a sedative <laughs> like he needed that. The guy was already out. And it took him three years to get the body cam footage, and it was it was almost it was thirteen minutes. This guy was like that, and they mm-hmm. killed him. And we don't have any riots over that, but there's a family demanding justice, and I was demanding justice over here on on the radio. And you know, even George Floyd doesn't in my mind doesn't matter what was in his system, doesn't matter what he did before. Even though we pointed out, you know, he was in porn, he was doing these things and all this other. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, if somebody kills you. There's a number of ways the scriptures handle that. You know, if you're premeditating that, okay, we get to off you real quickly. You know, we get to have a rock party with you out in the street and bury you under them. But when it when it comes to a thing, if somebody did something unintentionally, if that's what it was, um, then then you have a whole different thing of basically you're going to be in service to that family to make up for you know what happened to this guy over here. This is what's going to. You don't go to jail. You go get to take care of that family. And uh, some people think, well, how do you how do you you know make that happen? Well, the same th- same way you do anybody else, you make show up for you know their uh, their visitations and everything else. You do it the same way, you enforce it. But I think one of the things that we're missing, Dale, and we talked about this with um, Dr. Edwin Vera on the militia, that's what's missing. 
And because we don't have a militia to enforce the law, we allow police to be set up. And this isn't a a downing on police. What I'm saying is the people have vacated their responsibility as those under our Constitution. The militia is the ones there to enforce the law, to put down insurrections, and to repel invasions. That's not the police department. That's the people. And we have unelected police doing these things, and then we get into all the politics of what that is. Whereas if you have the people coming to the aid of this, when round two comes around, the people of Minneapolis ought to be out armed. And they ought to be putting down some of these people who are creating violence, who are destroying businesses and all. I make no apology about it. We had the story from um, uh, Owen over there at InfoWars, and he's talking about, well, I was ran out of a Trump rally. I had to run to a Humvee. And the Black Lives Matter and Antifa people were all over the thing. He was in fear for his life. And I thought, well, dude, what you you guys are Second Amendment people. What you should have did was pop out of the top of the Humvee, find the loudest, biggest guy you could find who you thought was a threat to you, and pop him, and this crowd would disperse. And people are going to say, well, you just want to kill people. No, it looked like they wanted to kill him. It would be a self-defense move. And people have to start getting back. If we don't get back to that kind of understanding, this is going to continue to grow and it's going to overtake us. Now, the hope is we would have peace. But there are people who don't want peace. They want a revolution. They want to overturn our foundations. They want to overturn the law and make it in their own image because they have a God of their own image. It's themselves. And we, there has to be a place to, to go back and to deal with this kind of stuff. And, uh, one of the things that, you know, I don't know if it's a part of restore Minnesota there or not, because we kind of talked about a lot of really the problems there, but I don't know if it's part of the restore Minnesota, but I think one of the things that, that Dr. Um, Vieira and I talked about was the people starting to push locally for a militia. And if you want to dissolve the police department, that's fine. Make those who are well-trained and who have good character a part, a subset of the militia. So now there's not this thin blue line. Everybody's on equal playing field and their job is to enforce the law. And, um, I think that's a, I think that's a workable thing. I don't think it's hard for people to grasp either because everybody knows when they see certain things, Within them, they cry out for justice when they see injustice being done. What better way to get what you want than to do it lawfully as a member of the public enforcing the law? Not being vigilantes, but enforcing the law. And that comes under a certain direction under our Constitution as well. Well, I agree with you 100%. And, and of course, um, in in any of our communities, uh, the challenge is, whether we like it or not, um, we do have a sheriff's department. We do have a police force, and there is no um, official organizing of militias. Now, like you, I'm not anti the police. In fact, you know, I, I ride with those guys. I love those guys. They put their lives on their line for us all the time. There's, only, you know, the percentage of bad apples is pretty small, um, but of course, they're the ones that would blow everything out of proportion. So, what Restore Minnesota does is one is we, we try to work with our local governments. And by that, I mean uh, mayors, city councils, police chiefs, sheriff's departments, and educate them on the things that we know that is coming from our intelligence community so they can be better prepared to defend our local communities. And you're certainly aware because of your profession, Tim, there have been uh, now some national 
news given to at least two or three communities I'm aware of that when Antifa and BLM started coming in, the citizens were fully armed and they met those people as they were coming into town and all they did was show their weapons and the other side turned around and left because they're not going to, you know, they're, they're not going to be prepared to take on the people defending their homes. I mean, that, that kind of sounds like a revolutionary war, doesn't it? Um, yeah, well, they didn't do it up at Lobby Day either. And we had tens of thousands of people armed to the teeth in there. Some, that, is, that is probably the most politest crowd that I was ever in, shoulder to shoulder with. Uh, that I, I mean, that I've ever seen and you didn't, there were all the talk, oh, they're going to bust people in. Okay. Bust those people in. They'll get some heads cracked. I mean, that's just the way it was going to be if some of that stuff started. And, uh, but the people who are armed, who were, you know, made out to be the bad guys, the really dangerous people. I mean, Sean Hannity, you know, shame on him for what he said about the people at, at Michigan going up there armed. They weren't uh, threatening anybody. They were just showing that they have the right to keep and bear arms, and that is to secure a free state. And they're not the bad guys. The bad guys are the guys who don't want to show you their guns until they use them uh, and they make threats against you and they act lawless. And so I think we can find a way towards this, um, not just in Minnesota, but in South Carolina and North Carolina and around the country. We can see this kind of stuff to where we can develop it. Um, Dale, I'm going to get ready to close out here. Is there any final words you want to say? What would be some things you would speak to the people of Minnesota about what you're engaged in? Maybe you have a way you want to throw into how they might be able to contact you. And then what would be some advice maybe you want to push out to people in other states? Well, I appreciate that. Um, I think the first thing that uh, uh, is of importance is because our churches tend to be very ignorant of what the role of the church is for government and what our call is in influencing government um, from the political side as well as the spiritual side and how you how those things blend and don't just bounce off each other. Uh, I think we need to be teaching more churches about what biblical citizenship looks like. Philippians 1.27 tells us, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that Greek phraseology is different than in the other parts of the New Testament where Paul says similar things about living in a particular manner of life. The Greek words there can also mean only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And the root word used there could also potentially be understood as only do politics worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Part of what I do in Minnesota is I travel the state, I speak in churches, I speak to civic groups and so forth on biblical citizenship. What does that look like? What does that mean? And how does that transfer into the life of everybody who calls himself a follower of Christ? So I say the first thing is get educated on biblical citizenship. And the place to start there is if you have a Christian policy council in your state, contact them. If you don't, you can look up MFC, that's MaryFrankCharlie.org, MFC, MinnesotaFamilyCouncil.org, and you can at least start getting some ideas for biblical citizenship in your state. If you want to reach out to me personally, um, it's Dale at MFC.org. You can use that uh, uh, email address for the purpose of biblical citizenship, and I'd be glad to respond to that. Okay. All right. Do you have a website there or anything that people can go to or uh, anything well, other than? Yeah, the websites I always point people to is the MFC website. Okay. And then from there, 
um, you know, we point them to Family Research Council, which is frc.org, or the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, which is cpcfoundation.com, and then that will take you to your own state. And because I'm representative of each of those groups, those are the websites that I would point people to. Okay. All right, Dale, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us and uh, and for letting us know kind of what's going on in the state of Minnesota, what you're doing there. And uh, we wish you the best. We'll keep you in our prayers because uh, this has got to be happening around the country. Uh, we've had Matt Trujillo come on and talked about the doctrine of lesser magistrate. This has got to apply in a lot of places. And I appreciate the fact that you talked about, you know, we, we our politics should be that that reflects what uh, the Bible says. In other words, we adhere to biblical law and what we learn in the Bible and bring those things out. And look, that's the only way we're going to um, rescue the society of any, not just this one, of any country, of any state, of any county, is through the gospel. And you know what? Um, some people say, oh, we don't bring religion into that. You know, we want to talk e- economics and stuff, and we could go down the road of abortion. We'd go down the road of redefining marriage. All of that stuff has economic implications. I don't know if some people even think about that because they're not taught economics, uh, as you said earlier in the show. But we have all those things. We wish you the best in that. And uh, maybe we'll bring you back on the show to see how things are going a little bit long, uh, later down the road, especially if uh, the phase two starts rolling out and uh, some things go on. Because I'm telling you, if uh, if they let some things go without any justice, uh, Minneapolis and other city, big cities, major cities are going to have some issues. And it's got it's going to be up to the people. Guys, you can't wait on the president to do something. You can't wait on the governor to do something. You guys have to start this now, start establishing and, and pushing for um, the constitutional militia. And the militia is biblical. The militia is not a standing army, but the militia is. That's a biblical thing. And so we need to do that. We need to push for that kind of thing because we're going to be the ones who have to guard our liberty uh, because we have such corruption uh, in such high places that we can't depend upon those people. Those people are actually the ones bringing the tyranny to us. So anyway, tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to have Chuck Baldwin on. We're going to talk about the deception of the modern state of Israel. You guys don't want to miss that. You people who disagree with me, you're welcome to disagree with me, but we're going to go to Scripture over it, and uh, you don't want to miss that. And it has political implications both in foreign policy and domestically. You don't want to miss that. Till then, see ya.